There's a well-known story in Sikh history about Masal Rungar, an Indian government official who was killed in the year 1740. After being appointed as the commandant of Amritsar, a city in the Punjab region, he took up residence in the Golden Temple, the holiest site in the Sikh religion. Masal Rungar drank alcohol, smoked, and brought dancing girls into the temple, a sacrilegious act. When word spread about the desecration of the temple, two Sikhs named Bai Sukha Singh and Bai Metab Singh decided to take matters into their own hands. They went to the Golden Temple and found Masal Rungar drunk. In a quick flash, they cut off his head with a sword. By the time authorities at the temple knew what had happened, Sukha and Metab had vanished. The Indian government found Metab Singh eventually. They gave him an ultimatum. He could either convert from Sikhism to Islam, or he would be sentenced to death for his crime. Metab replied, No true Sikh can ever agree to give up his faith, to turn his back on the guru. I shall die a Sikh. After brutally torturing him, they beheaded Metab and hung his head up for all to see. He became remembered by Sikh followers as a holy martyr. Over 200 years later, another Sikh man named Bayant Singh watched an Indian politician desecrate the Golden Temple, not with alcohol or tobacco, but with a violent military invasion that left 500 people dead. Like the martyrs before him, Bayant swore to take vengeance. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our first episode on Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, who was killed by her own bodyguards in 1984. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. On October 17, 1984, 34-year-old Bant Singh stood in a dressing room and tied his turban before work. Bant was a bodyguard in a unique position. He protected the Prime Minister, Indira Gandhi. Beside him was his fellow bodyguard, 21-year-old Satwant Singh. Bant whispered under his breath that he wanted justice. Satwant didn't have to ask why. Just four months earlier, the Indian military had stormed the Sikh religion's holiest temple, leaving hundreds of Sikhs dead. The mission, called Operation Blue Star, had been greenlit by the Prime Minister, the very woman Bayant and Satwant were sworn to protect. Bayant told Satwant that Indira Gandhi was responsible for the mess. Satwant agreed. 
But what Bayant said next surprised him. He said Gandhi should be killed. Bayant Singh and Sudwant Singh were both followers of Sikhism, a religion that originated in India's Punjab region in the 15th century. Sikhism shares many similarities with India's two biggest religions, Hinduism and Islam, but the main focus of their doctrine is the equality of all people, regardless of race, gender, religion, or social standing. Since the early 20th century, the Sikh community has been actively involved in political movements for religious freedom, nonviolent protests, and community service. Sikhs follow a set of idiosyncratic rules that make them stand out in a crowd. For example, Sikh men and women typically take the surnames Singh and Kaur, respectively. They're also forbidden from cutting off any of their body hair, which is thought to be sacred. These cultural differences immediately marked them as different. Sikhs are a small minority, making up only 2% of the total population. This put them into constant conflict with the Hindus and Muslims who made up most of India's populace. But in the Punjab region, where Bayant Singh was born in 1950, over half the population was Sikh. They worshipped freely at the Gurdwara, or temple, just in front of Bayant's house. Everyone in the neighborhood, regardless of faith, was invited to attend the Gurdwara's free vegetarian meals. Sikhs aren't required to live meat-free, but only vegetarian food can be served in the temple to make sure visitors from other faiths won't be offended. Bayan's family took their religion's civic-minded ideals seriously. His eldest brother, Shamsher, went into civil service working for the judicial branch in the Punjab state government. In 1972, when Bayant was 22, he followed a similar path and joined the police force in Delhi, the nation's capital. Bayant was one of thousands of officers assigned to the Delhi police's VIP security unit, which provides protection to state ministers, politicians, and judges. In 2016, this division made up 25% of the city's total police force. Bayant quickly excelled, and within two years, he'd risen to the highest echelons of the security branch, protecting Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. There was a lot of protecting to be done. Gandhi had first been elected eight years earlier in 1966. In 1971, she'd won re-election in a landslide, campaigning with the slogan, Eradicate Poverty. But by 1974, the anti-poverty reforms she'd promised hadn't quite panned out. Inflation was rising, an international oil embargo had thrown the economy into turmoil, and a drought was devastating some of the country's agricultural areas. Gandhi's support was quickly turning to disillusionment and unrest, especially in Bayant's home state of Punjab. Punjab was responsible for a large portion of the country's agricultural output, but during the drought, they received little help from the federal government in Delhi. Since the Sikh population was concentrated in Punjab, it was Sikhs who were disproportionately affected by the drought. But the tiny religious minority didn't have the political clout to make their voices heard. This was the maelstrom of tension Bayant Singh found himself in the middle of 
when he was assigned to protect Indira Gandhi in the mid-1970s. After he passed the rigorous screening process, which included six sets of interviews and tests, he took his position guarding one of the prime minister's cars. As a Sikh man from Punjab, Bayant might have felt some conflict about the prime minister's policies and priorities, but he didn't let it affect his work. He quickly became one of Gandhi's most trusted bodyguards, accompanying her on trips out of the country. Apart from her sons, 28-year-old Sanjay and 30-year-old Rajiv, Bayant Singh was one of very few people Indira trusted as the nation turned against her. In June 1975, the High Court charged Indira Gandhi with electoral malpractice. She was found guilty of using government resources and machinery during her 1971 campaign. The election was declared void, and Gandhi was removed from office and barred from running for any political seat for six years. The Times of London compared it to firing the prime minister for a traffic ticket. Gandhi refused to step down, insisting the so-called electoral corruption was little more than a technicality. On June 25th, opposition leader Maraji Desai gave a speech urging the police and military to ignore Gandhi's commands, declaring, We intend to overthrow her. The lady won't survive our movement. Within three hours, Prime Minister Gandhi took a drastic step to quell the uprising. She had a state of emergency declared across India, then invoked constitutional articles to give herself unprecedented powers. Electricity was cut to all the nation's major newspapers. Protesters and opposition party members were arrested, and elections were indefinitely suspended. The strongest response was from the Sikh community. Days after the emergency was declared, Sikh leaders convened at the Golden Temple in Amritsar, the region's holiest site, to discuss their opposition to the fascist tendency of Gandhi's Congress party. On July 9, 1975, they launched the Campaign to Save Democracy with a peaceful mass protest in Amritsar. The state of emergency lasted for 21 months, during which time 140,000 people were arrested. Historian J.S. Graywall estimated that nearly a third of them came from the 2% Sikh minority. But through all the chaos, Bayant Singh stayed by Indira Gandhi's side. His duty, as a police officer and as a Sikh, was to protect the Prime Minister's life, whether he agreed with her politics or not. In 1977, nearly two years after the emergency was declared, Gandhi decided to lift the ban on elections. This was a bad move. She lost in a landslide, and her political party, the Congress Party, lost nearly 200 seats in Parliament. With Gandhi gone, so was her security detail. Bayant Singh was transferred back to his old unit in the Delhi Armed Police. The reassignment gave him more time to focus on his family. The previous year, he'd married a nurse named Bimal Kaur Khalsa. They now had a daughter, Amrit, and another baby on the way. By all accounts, Bayant was mild-mannered, carefree, and well-liked among the police force. Soon after his transfer, he was promoted to sub-inspector. Meanwhile, the new prime minister, 
opposition leader Morarji Desai, was proving to be even more unpopular than Indira Gandhi. In 1980, Gandhi was miraculously re-elected, and two years later, Bayant Singh was back on her security force. On his second tour of duty, Bayant was given a more sensitive assignment, guarding Indira Gandhi's official residence. He'd proven his loyalty during the state of emergency, and he was now trusted to protect the prime minister's entire family. Bayant may have been ready to forgive Gandhi for her missteps, but the rest of the Sikh community was not. After a decade of chaos and civil unrest, nothing had been done to stop the economic decay in Punjab. Dissatisfied with the national government, a Sikh leader named Jarnail Singh Bindranwali began a campaign for more state autonomy and more religious and cultural protections for Punjab's Sikh population. The conflict came to a head in 1982 when Bindranwali proposed the idea of seceding from India and forming an independent Sikh state. Indira Gandhi responded by branding Bindranwali as a terrorist and calling for his arrest. To evade the police, Bindranwali took refuge in the Golden Temple of Amritsar. He was joined by 200 followers armed with heavy weaponry. By December 1983, the Golden Temple had been turned into a full-fledged headquarters for Bindranwali's militia, complete with stockpiles of guns and ammunition. Bindranwali assumed the Indian government wouldn't storm the temple to arrest him since it was such a holy site for the Sikh religion. It would be the equivalent of the American government invading Temple Square in Salt Lake City, though followers of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints make up a small percentage of the U.S. population. The decision would be viewed negatively across the country. But to Indira Gandhi, The woman who'd held the nation under a state of emergency for nearly two years, no political maneuver was off limits. She would do whatever it took to restore order, even if it risked upsetting the Sikhs, even if it risked the loyalty of her closest bodyguard, Bayant Singh. Coming up, we'll take a look at Indira Gandhi's rise to power and the military operation that transformed Bayant Singh's perspective. Now, back to the story. Indira Nehru Gandhi was born into politics. In 1929, when Indira was 12 years old, her father, Jawaharlal Nehru, drafted the Indian Declaration of Independence, setting the nation on course to win their freedom from British rule. Indira's childhood was lonely. She was an only child, her mother was chronically ill, and her father was often away, working alongside Mahatma Gandhi to free India from colonial rule. As a young adult, Indira went off to Oxford to study history, political science, and economics. She was a good student in every class, except Latin, which she failed multiple times. But she was forced to drop out in 1940 as World War II broke out across Europe. Indira returned home with a boyfriend in tow, an Indian political activist named Feroz Gandhi. No relation to Mahatma. Feroz was five years Indira's senior, 28 to her 23. He was a longtime family friend of the Nehru's, but Indira's father opposed the marriage because Feroz was Parsi, 
not Hindu, and inter-religion marriages were frowned upon in India. But Indira was undeterred. She and Firoz were married in early 1942. Two years later, Indira gave birth to their first son, Rajiv. Their second son, Sanjay, came two years later. Societal expectations for women at the time would have seen Indira spend the next 20 years of her life at home taking care of her children. But Indira wasn't one to succumb to expectation. In 1947, India finally gained independence from Britain, and Indira's father, Jawaharlal Nehru, was elected as the first prime minister. Indira spent her 30s working closely as her father's unofficial assistant, absorbing all the information she could about Indian politics and economics. By 1959, when Indira was 42, she briefly served as president of the Indian National Congress Party, the political party that dominated the government at the time. In 1960, Indira's husband, Firoz, died of a heart attack. Just four years later, her father died, ending his 17-year rule as prime minister. That same year, the new prime minister, Lal Bahadur Shastri, appointed Indira to a cabinet position as Minister of Information and Broadcasting. She was also elected to serve in the upper house of the legislature. Shastri died just two years later in January 1966. After his death, the legislature elected Indira Gandhi to replace him as prime minister. Indira, who had only served in elected office for two years, might seem like an unqualified choice for prime minister. But that was exactly the point. The Congress party leaders hoped to use her as a puppet. They saw her as weak enough to be easily controlled, but popular enough to win elections because of her late father's reputation. But she would prove to be a difficult puppet. The fact that she rose through the political ranks so quickly is a testament to her own intelligence. And once she was in power, she had no intention of being controlled. Indira served as prime minister from 1966 to 1977. She ran on a platform of eradicating poverty, which inspired her electorate in a way that wasn't common in Indian politics. She gravitated towards socialism, with policies that stifled corporate interests and reined in the wealthy. To revive the economy, she nationalized many industries and aimed to make India less reliant on other countries for resources. These changes made her popular among the masses. But at the same time, these policies weakened local government's powers and created an extremely powerful central government. Her refusal to follow the party boss's orders led to a split within the Congress party, one faction that was loyal to the traditional party leaders and one faction that was loyal to Indira Gandhi. Indira's faction maintained the most power. In 1975, Indira's political rival accused her of misusing government money for her campaigns, and she was ordered to step down. Indira refused. Instead, she had the president declare a state of emergency. During the emergency, she gave her son, Sanjay, unprecedented power within the government. Sanjay was just shy of his 30th birthday and didn't hold any elected office. 
But in the family tradition, he didn't let his inexperience or constitutional limitations stop him from seizing control. Sunjai's most notorious initiative was a forced sterilization program to prevent overpopulation. Over the course of 1976 and 77, an estimated 7 million people were sterilized, many of them against their will. When Indira finally agreed to reopen elections in 1977, unsurprisingly, she lost. After a few years of tending her political wounds, Indira set her sights on winning re-election in 1980. Her biggest challenge was splitting the opposition party, which was a coalition of different factions held together only by their hatred of Indira Gandhi. If she could divide them, the Congress party would once again be the strongest. In 1977, the Akali Dal Party, led by Sikh followers, had won nine additional seats in Parliament. Indira needed to split the Sikh vote and toss the Akali Dal out of power. Sanjay came up with a strategy. Team up with extremist Sikh leader Jarnail Singh Bindranwali. In 1979, the Congress party worked with Bindranwali to run candidates against the Akali Dal in the Punjab elections. The next year, Bindranwali campaigned for the Congress party in the general elections. Step two was to secure the Muslim vote. Indira and Sanjay did this by cozying up to Muslim leaders and drawing their support toward the Congress party. Miraculously, in the January 1980 election, the opposition party fractured, and Indira was elected as prime minister. Sanjay was by her side as her closest advisor and hopeful political heir. In May of 1980, Sanjay was appointed as secretary general of the Congress party. But just a month later, in June of 1980, Sanjay died in a plane crash at the age of 33. Having lost her husband, her father, and now her closest son, Indira was left with only one confidant, her eldest son, Rajiv. 35-year-old Rajiv was a shy, unambitious pilot who'd never shown any interest in politics. But after Sanjay's death, the Congress party circulated a proposal for Rajiv's entrance into the political world. Indira told them it was her son's decision, not hers or theirs. But his brother's unexpected death had forced Rajiv to reconsider his duties as the prime minister's only surviving son. When asked about it, he replied, If my mother gets help from it, I will enter politics. After Sanjay's death, Indira grew more anxious about keeping her grip on power. The people she loved and trusted had all died. The opposition was rebuilding itself after its defeat in 1980, and another election was always just around the corner. It was Indira's instinct to suppress any kind of rebellion. Some of that rebellion came from Jarnail Singh Bindranwali. He'd been a useful ally during the campaign, but almost immediately after the election, he became impossible to control. In April 1980, he was suspected of murdering the leader of a rival Sikh sect. In September 1981, a newspaper editor was murdered in Punjab, and once again, Bindranwali was the main suspect. 
He was finally arrested later that month, and in response, his followers began a campaign of terror. Hindus were attacked all across India. On September 30th, an Indian Airlines plane was hijacked in an attempt to focus the attention of the world to the demands of the Sikhs. When Bindranwali was finally released for insufficient evidence in October, he was only more popular and more militant than he had been before. With the support of Pakistan, which was a longtime enemy of India and of Indira Gandhi in particular, Bindranwali built up a militia and made plans to secede from India and form a separate Sikh state. In 1982, Gandhi declared her one-time ally a terrorist. Bindranwali took shelter in the Golden Temple in Amritsar, assuming the Indian government wouldn't risk the backlash of attacking the Sikh religion's holiest site. He was right. For nearly two years, Gandhi tried to negotiate with Bindranwali, hoping to convince him and his 200 militants to leave their compound in peace. Bindranwali refused. Barricaded inside the temple, he and his followers were only becoming more extreme. A police officer was killed outside the compound in April 1983, and six more officers were kidnapped and held hostage inside the temple in February 1984. Throughout the spring of 1984, 165 Hindus were killed in a wave of extremist attacks. Still, the Indian government hesitated to react. Most Sikh leaders were too afraid to take action either, because dozens of Sikhs who spoke out against Bindranwali had been murdered by his followers. By the end of May 1984, after nearly two years of fruitless negotiations, the Indian government realized Bindranwali would never surrender peacefully. On the advice of her army chief, Indira Gandhi decided to up the ante. She authorized the military to storm the Golden Temple and arrest him by force. Gandhi assumed that Bindranwali would realize he was outnumbered and surrender once the military surrounded his compound. Before Operation Blue Star was launched on June 3rd, she sent troops out to the surrounding countryside to maintain order and imposed a 36-hour curfew to keep townspeople out of the line of fire. If all went as planned, she believed the operation could succeed without any civilian casualties. And in case things went sideways, she ordered power cuts and a complete media blackout to keep the mission under wraps. When the army surrounded the temple on June 3, 1984, they shouted over loudspeakers, urging the militants to surrender. For two days, they tried to negotiate, but Bindranwali still refused. Finally, on June 5th, the army went in. They knew the militants were armed, but they had severely underestimated the group's resources. They equipped with submachine guns and anti-tank grenades. The battle lasted for three days. More than 500 people were killed on both sides, including soldiers, civilians, and Bindranwali himself. Several hundred more people were injured. Sikhs around the world were stunned. The Indian army had massacred their holiest landmark. It was intended as an attack on extremism, but as Gandhi had feared, 
Most Sikhs viewed it as an attack on their entire religion. Bayan Singh was among the outraged Sikhs. He'd been serving as Indira Gandhi's bodyguard for 10 years. He was as close as family to her. He had taught Indira's grandson, Rahul, how to play badminton. And now, the woman he'd devoted his life to protecting had waged an unprecedented attack against his faith. After Operation Blue Star, it was widely suspected that someone in the Sikh community would try and retaliate against the prime minister. Bayant found himself in a unique position. He was responsible for stopping those threats, but because of his religion, he was an object of suspicion himself. In July, the head of the intelligence bureau even tried to remove all Sikhs from Indira's protection detail. Indira immediately sent the order back to the intelligence bureau with a quick handwritten note. How can we claim to be secular? That August, a reporter asked Indira if it was possible to trust her Sikh guards after what had happened. Bayant stopped next to her as she fielded the question. Indira smiled at him and replied, When I have Sikhs like this around me, I don't believe I have anything to fear. A few weeks after the Operation Blue Star raid, Bayant went to a ceremony at the Gurdwara in Delhi. He had never been particularly religious, but thinking on the destruction of Operation Blue Star, he was moved to tears. His uncle, Kehar Singh, was an assistant at the Gurdwara. Bayant asked him if God would avenge the act of desecration. Kehar told him not to grieve, but to take revenge. He said, someone has to be the sons of Sukha Singh and Metap Singh. We need to remember them and become like them. Coming up, we'll look at the events that inspired Bayant Singh to violence. Now back to the story. On October 14, 1984, Bayant Singh went to the Gurdwara in Delhi to take Umrit, the Sikh baptism ceremony. Bayant had been baptized as a child, but as an adult, he hadn't been maintaining Sikh laws and customs. To prove his dedication, he had to sweep the temple floor and recite the Sukhmani Sahib, a 24-part prayer of peace. The entire Sukhmani Sahib takes over an hour to recite. As the ceremony started, Bayant removed his traditional gold jewelry and gave it to his uncle Kehar. The Sikh leaders poured clean water and sugar crystals called patashas into a steel bowl and stirred it with a double-edged sword. Five handfuls of the water were given to Bayant to drink, five handfuls were sprinkled over his head, and five more were sprinkled into his eyes. Bayant swore to live in devotion to God and to Sikh principles. He would stop at nothing to defend his faith, even if it meant risking his own life, even if it meant committing a murder. Bayant was in a peculiar position. He was part of Indira Gandhi's inner circle, having served as her bodyguard for 10 years. He had unparalleled access to the prime minister who had ordered a violent attack on the holiest site in Sikhism. He had to decide where his loyalties lay, with Indira Gandhi or with God. 
In October 1984, four months after Operation Blue Star, Bayant made his decision. And there was another devout Sikh on Gandhi's security detail who might be on his side. 21-year-old Satwant Singh was a recent hire. He'd only joined Gandhi's detail the previous May, just before Operation Blue Star. He'd been halfway across the country, in Bhopal, when the operation occurred. When he heard the news, he had rushed back home to Delhi in shock. His family was from Punjab, and he took the act of disrespect toward the Golden Temple personally. So when Bayant spoke to Satwant on October 17, 1984, and said that Indira Gandhi should be killed, Satwant didn't disagree. That same evening, Bayant's uncle, Kehar Singh, came to visit his home. Bayant's wife, Bimal, was in the kitchen, so they went up to the roof to talk privately. All Bimal could hear was whispering. When they came back inside, Bimal asked what they'd been discussing. Kehar replied that they were talking about someone who'd be taking the Umrit ceremony at the temple soon. Bimal remarked that there was no reason to talk so secretively about taking the Umrit. Kehar stayed for dinner that evening, and Satwant Singh came over too. Bimal realized something was going on between the three of them. Her husband hadn't been the same since Operation Blue Star. He was moody, withdrawn. She couldn't blame him for being upset, but she sensed there was something else on his mind too. But all Bayant would tell her was that he, Kehar, and Satwant were taking a pilgrimage to the Golden Temple in a few days. If that's all they were doing, Bimal wanted to go along too. She was a devout Sikh, just like the rest of them. Three days later, on October 20th, Bayant, Bimal, their three children, and Uncle Kehar took the train to Amritsar, Punjab. They reached the house of a family friend at two or three in the afternoon. That evening, Bayant and Kehar left to visit the Golden Temple. Bimal was told to stay behind and watch the children. She could go see the temple the next morning. When they arrived at the Golden Temple, Bayant finally saw the destruction of Operation Blue Star with his own eyes. The temple's glowing pink bricks were ripped through with bullet holes and stained with blood, the blood of Bayant's people. The sight only reaffirmed Bayant's decision. It was his duty to kill Indira Gandhi. Satwant was supposed to meet them in Amritsar, but they waited all evening and he didn't show up. Even before their plan went into action, Bayant didn't know if he could trust his co-conspirator. When Bayant returned to Delhi, he confronted Satwant, doubting his commitment to their plan. Satwant admitted he'd gotten cold feet, but he promised he was in. When the time came, he wouldn't hesitate. Bayant and Satwant knew that Indira Gandhi walked the same path from her house to her office every morning. They also knew that she didn't wear a bulletproof vest. There were always 50 guards stationed outside the prime minister's residence. Bayant and Satwant would be able to shoot her down before the others could react, but they probably wouldn't come out of it alive. Bayant recalled the story of Sukha Singh and Metab Singh, the Sikh martyrs who had killed an Indian official for desecrating the Golden Temple over 200 years earlier. 
Now it was Bayant and Sutwant's turn to follow their example. The two guards worked opposite shifts, so they needed to figure out a way to be in the prime minister's presence at the same time. Bayant, who normally worked nights, requested a switch to the morning shift for Wednesday, October 31st. The request was approved. When the morning arrived, Sutwant pretended to be ill and asked another guard to switch positions with him so he could be closer to the toilet. The other guard obliged without asking for any more detail. Sutwant was now posted right next to the wicker gate outside the prime minister's home. On the opposite side of the gate was Bayant Singh. At eight past nine in the morning on October 31st, 1984, Indira Gandhi stepped out of her front door, flanked by aides and TV cameramen. She had a packed schedule that day, starting with an interview with British actor Peter Ustinov, who was filming a series on world leaders. Peter was waiting just outside Gandhi's residence on the other side of a tall hedge. As Gandhi made her way down the path from the front door to the gate, Bayant whispered to Sutwant, Here she comes. Be careful about whom you shoot. You should only get her. Bayant put his hand on his 38 caliber revolver. Sutwant didn't move. He was still hesitant. Bayant snarled, If you lose your guts, I'll fire at you. When she reached the gate, Indira looked at her two security guards and said, Namaste. It was the last thing she ever said. Bayant raised his gun in what looked like a salute. Then he fired three shots into her abdomen. Sutwand was frozen. Bayant yelled, shoot. He looked down at the prime minister, who'd already fallen in a pool of blood. Sutwant finally raised his submachine gun and fired 30 more rounds. The attack was over in seconds. Before anyone could react, Bayant and Sutwant had set down their weapons. As the other guards closed in, Bayant shouted, I've done what I had to do. You do what you want to do. Bayant and Sutwant had avenged the attack on the Golden Temple. But Indira Gandhi's death wouldn't bring peace to the Sikhs' India. In fact, things were about to get a lot worse. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday to discuss the aftermath of Indira Gandhi's assassination, which shook India and the world. You can find more episodes of Assassinations, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Olga Lexel and stars Kate Leonard, 
and Bill Thomas. 